You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But again, I'm uh, glad you're here. Welcome to this uh, second of three-part series on the great hymns and prayers of Christmas. And last week, I got a little long-winded and I didn't get as far as I wanted to, but uh I did talk about very significant things. I don't know if I talked about them significantly, but uh, we talked about the great biblical prayers associated with Christmas from from Zacharias's to Mary's and then uh, Simeon's there just outside the gate of the temple. Uh, and those are wonderful. Just say one thing. So whenever you get off what you make is a rabbit trail, it's always Oh. All right. Well, I may charge double for those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, thank you. Uh, sometimes they are they're catchable rabbits and sometimes they're wild hares. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, thanks. But uh, uh, what I want to do today is to also look at some very significant things about our Christian faith. And the overall goal is somewhat seen here in this little section of this wonderful poem by a wonderful Christian leader, Jesuit, named Gerard Manley Hopkins. Make me pure, Lord, thou art holy. Make me meek, Lord, thou art lowly. Now beginning and always, now begin on Christmas Day. That, that's my aim of this, that what I want to try to offer here for us is that by looking at these great hymns and great prayers of our faith, associate with the birth of Christ, Christmas coming up, this Advent season, that we will become holy and lowly here on, our, on Christmas Day because of what we see. Also, uh, my approach to this, seen here by that great quote from St. Augustine, is that we should uh, ponder in our hearts what our mouth utters, these great prayers that we share with one another. I mean, how many times have you read the Magnificat or heard it sung? In fact, as I was driving over this morning, on the Symphony Channel, they had a, a number of Magnificats coming on on the Symphony Channel. So, tremendous prayer. But we should ponder on these words to deepen our own hearts. All right. And the sort of sort of syllogism that I have here, that is the, the, the logic of all this, is that theology, that is our, our ability to rightly think about God, comes from our devotion. That is how our hearts are moved. Our devotion results from divine encounters. We're not just thinking about ourselves. We're responding to how God has confronted us, which is exactly what Christmas is all about. We didn't become incarnate in heaven and find God. God became incarnate in our realm, in the realm of humanity and history. And it's in those encounters that we learn about the holy. And so my point is, from holiness, encounters, devotion, and theology, our lives, maybe our lives, as, as Gerard Manley Hopkins says, can become more holy because of what God has done towards us. So there's a personal dimension to this. I'd like for us to examine ourselves as we think about these things. And then sort of the intellectual, and that is our own reflections on it, how we think about this, how we can rightly order our thoughts relative to the realities of which Christmas is all about. All right, bear with me as I move over. That's the Magnificat that we looked at last time, the Benedictus, the great prayer of Zacharias, and the Dimittis, Simeon's great prayer here. And I want to look at this wonderful hymn, uh, I Wish I Could Sing, in my next life, I'm coming back as an opera singer. Uh, I, I don't believe in next lives, other than the raised one. Uh, but uh, And maybe I will be an opera singer then. Who knows? Uh, I mean, the, the uh, heaven seems to be full with a great angelic choir. Perhaps I'll at last be able to join a choir. Uh, 
but uh, this wonderful hymn uh, is is great. One of the great testimonies of our faith. On Christmas Eve, if you listen to the great King's College Chapel choir there, uh, the recessional hymn, traditionally, I'm not sure how many years they've been doing this, they sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's this great hymn written by Charles Wesley. You know, he and his brother John really are quite significant figures, I think, in the history, especially of English-speaking Christianity. And through their hymns, as they have been translated into the language through all of Christianity, or at least in the West. But as you know, they were uh, English. Uh, John Wesley, beginning of the Wesleyan movement, or what we know as Methodism. Charles, his famous brother, tremendous hymn writers, uh, great theologians in their own right, biblical scholars. But even more so, their devotion was so profound that they were able to bring their mind to catch up with what their heart knew. And this wonderful hymn, I think, captures this. There are several things about it. I'm not going to obviously try to sing it, but I want to look at some of the wording of this. That is, what's the devotion that's being captured in these words? What, what, what's the encounter with God here that uh, Charles Wesley is able to capture in this wonderful hymn, which of all Christmas hymns, I'll vote for this one. This is my favorite Christian on a Christmas hymn. Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Well, one thing about it, uh, I like about it, and if we saw this a little bit last time, and if you read the scriptures, every time God does something significant, there's a voice coming from heaven. God's always speaking out of heaven. Oftentimes when that voice comes to heaven, there are angels accompanying that voice singing. And so God has a choir constantly, in a way, on call for all these magnificent moments that God shows up and does these wonderful things. And here at, at Christmas, you know, angels sing around the manger where Mary and, and Joseph and Jesus are. And so Charles here is able to capture the idea that, once again, heaven is speaking our voice. We don't have to speak heaven's voice. We don't have to find that heavenly, ethereal, otherworldly, supernatural, unreal, occultic, you get it, language to find how to rightly sing about God. God comes and sings in our language. God provides us with words that we're familiar with and comes and communicates to these angels to this. And I think, I don't know what those angels sang when they were there at Bethlehem. I've been to Bethlehem. I, I didn't hear any recordings when I was there. But if anyone could get close to it, I think Charles Wesley could get close to it. Uh, and that is the angels sing glory to the newborn king. A baby is a king. This is part of the Christian claim. At the very heart of our faith is a paradox that you cannot get rid of because that is the reality of which our faith is oriented. And that is God, a creator, became a creature. Think about it. God became a human being. The infinite became finite. The eternal became temporal. The very almighty power that brought the world into existence was born just like you and I were. That's at the heart of our faith, what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. Here, this great hymn, I think, is, is an attempt to sort of devotionally, passionately, profoundly within our own deepest intuitions, capture the wonder of such a paradox that the Creator made the world in a way that the very Creator of that world could become incarnate through the womb of Mary. What a fantastic thing to say. Our very faith is built upon that, what we call a paradox. 
Here he is, he is capturing that peace on earth, mercy mouth. God and sinners reconciled. That's another one of these great paradoxes. Our faith really draws us to, to uh, be overwhelmed by reality that we cannot simply describe, but we have to describe coming from two different directions. Think about it. God, yes. Creatures, yes. Jesus Christ, both are true. Jesus Christ, the holiness of God, and the human bearing the sins of the world all coming together in the same reality. You just cannot talk about Jesus in terms of being God. You also have to talk about Jesus in terms of being human being. You also just cannot talk about how God is great and holy. We also have to talk about how that great and holy God has reconciled us, has brought us into God's own presence. That's as much part of our devotion, our experience, our theology, as any attribute or description of God, and that is we have been brought into the presence of God and reconciled. Here, I think Charles is obviously picking this up. Joyful all you nations, join the triumph of the skies from the angelicals. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. Christ the Savior of the world. Any you been to Bethlehem? Did I talk about this last time? You've been to Bethlehem? It's rather unassuming, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, you would think it would be a little more glorious than what it is. And frankly, I don't think, I hope they never make it more glorious than what it is. It's complicated, it's, it's, it's run down, it's, it's dirty in often places. You've got to kneel down on your knees to try to see a place where Jesus was born. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? And this was a very dark and, and, and troubled time that Jesus was born in. There was nothing all that humanly fantastic or powerful or glorious or splendid about it. Christ came within that, within our own humility within our own lostness and the darkness of the world. So I kind of like the fact that they've kept the Church of the Nativity a very complicated, confusing, unassuming area, a place to go. I like that fact. And the Holy Sepulchre was the same way. Uh, if you ever go there, it's I, I was confused the whole time when I was in the Holy Sepulchre. I wasn't for sure what I was looking at. One thing, there were thousands of people in there. But, but again, I think that represents... You know, the essence of our Christian faith. We don't become perfect. You don't have to find perfection. Our faith is not based on the fact that you and I have created something that's flawless, that God so adores and wants to become part of. Rather, God loves imperfections. God loves that which is broken and flawed and fractured and fragile. God has come in the midst of all that, born there in Bethlehem. Uh this, this next stand of the highest heaven adored again, high becomes low. They're not mutually exclusive with God. They may be with you and me. Yes, they may be. Perfection and imperfection are mutually exclusive with you and me, but not with God. God is the only, think about it, God is the, because of our Christian faith, God is the only reality that we know or our minds can conceive of that can bear its opposite and and still be who it is. The holy bears sin and still is the redeeming Christ. God becomes a creature, a baby in fact, and is the incarnate Word of God. Late in time, behold, Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. I could go on a, you know, a long time about that concept. I remember years ago in a conversation with some people, 
of various denominations, and the, primarily the discussion was about the concept of the virgin birth. And of course, it, it stretches our mind to think about a virgin birth, no doubt about it, doesn't it? Uh, I've seen two births, and I know what happens and all that. Uh, and uh, part of the impetus of this conversation was how can we rightly understand the virgin birth? And most everybody wanted to get the virgin out of it. <laughs> virgin birth, or let's just redefine virgin, and we'll have, we'll have him born, just like you and I were born, but we're going to have to redefine the virgin. And, I, you know, I was kind of going along with that, thinking, okay, yeah, it's, a, it's a powerful concept, it's unusual, without parallel, these things don't happen, so how can we really understand it? But I think we were coming at that conversation from the wrong angle. We are trying to understand how can a virgin birth happen from our perspective, which... From your perspective, it's impossible. Just like from my perspective, it's impossible for me to become perfect or godly. I cannot. I'm not a heavenly being in any way. However, though, from God's perspective, the virgin birth is reasonable, predictable, consistent. I probably have done this with you on another occasion, too. There at the very beginning in the book of Genesis says that the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of the Lord, remember this? I like the King James, hovered like a bird. You've seen these birds hover over water. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit hovered over the water. And through, metaphorically speaking, the flapping of the wings, light comes out out of nothing. Earth, separation of the up and downs. It's by the overpowering of the Holy Spirit that creation took form. And how many times out, also throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament that God shows up in incredible, unpredictable, powerful ways and brings form out of chaos, brings meaning out of lostness, brings hope out of, out of despair. God does that all the time. Well, why would... There's nothing to prevent God from doing the virgin birth. That's my point. From us, yes, our perspective. But it's consistent theologically to say that God would do things like this. All right. And so it's right for us, I think, to emphasize the, the virgin birth in Christmas. Now, do I have to go get a, 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 a pediatrician to help explain how that is possible? No. Go read the Old Testament and you'll understand why it's, old, why it's possible. That's my point. Okay. And then um, great name, Emmanuel. I'm going to hold off on that name because the next name I'm going to look at is going to build on that concept. The idea of Christ here being with us. I mean, God is with us. Uh, heavenly born Prince of Peace. Christ came to bring peace to the world. Uh, and we know that that peace that God gives us in Christ, it will be the peace that will finally reconcile the enemies, overcome all the adversaries, overcome darkness itself, and even the greatest of those enemies, and that's, that's Satan itself. That Christ, the humble one there in the manger, is the one who's going to bring this peace. Now, uh, if you and I were born there, I mean, lived in that area in the, uh, in the beginning of the first century, and, and, and we were in, involved in some great international conflict, some war, or some tribe or group was coming down and invading us, whom would we call to try to give us peace? Who bore the title Pax? Rome. Rome brings peace. Why? Why Why could Rome be called Pax Romania? Their power. power to dominate, control, and even destroy. We think that which brings peace has to have that which can exercise 
control, even at the cost of killing somebody. That's what we think is peace, peacemaker. But the peacemaker that Christ is, is in Christ's humility. That divine power, and once again, this is one of these things that just stretches our minds and our hearts as far as they can be stretched. And that is divine power is found in God's ability to suffer the consequences of the guilty in order to redeem the guilty. That's divine power. God's power is being able to bear the darkness, the sin, the death, the struggles, the rebellion, the harm, the murders, the misery of the world, and work out divine purpose because of that. That's real power to be able to do that. And that's why it will be the last power that will bring peace in the world. Christ is our light in our life. Obviously, it enlightens our life. It gives us true meaning. How do you live in a world filled with violence? By the Prince of Peace. How do you live in a world full of hate and acrimony? You know, we could, we could pause here and talk about that for a long time. We live, in, I think, in a very acrimonious time. Look how words are being, choose, are being thrown around like bombs on people. Just bang, bang. I mean, every day, here comes another one. And just, a, you know, people's lives are being just sort of scattered around because of all the hate that's being filled. A Christian cannot justify talking hatefully about anyone. Why? Why not? The world does it. If we are committed to vengeance and retaliation, why not? Well, because Christ is our light. Christ is our life. And so part of the burden, well, no, part of the joy that we have as Christians living in a world, a society, a time of acrimonious words, is to how showed the light of love and peace with our words, not hate and vengeance. Born of a man no more to die, born to raise the son of earth, born to give him second birth. Uh, o, o come, O come, Emmanuel. Like I said, I'm going to hold off on that word for just a second. Uh, a ransom captive Israel. I talked a little bit about Israel last time. I'm going to say a little bit more about it here with um, the next hymn. A ransom. A ransom is a debt paid for somebody else. I can ransom you. That is, I'll pay your debt and you're no longer guilty. A ransom is something that is given in exchange for guilt. Christ here is the ransom. It's a word used often in Scripture. Theologically, I think there's a lot of rich meanings to the idea that Christ's death is the payment for our own sin and death, our own deserved punishment. There's nothing you can do to pay for your crime. Why? Because you're in debtor's prison. How can you get out of debtor's prison if you're in debtor's prison? We are in debtor's prison. Somebody has to pay our debt. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Ransomed us. But it's captive Israel. This is one of those troubled areas about Christmas sometimes for many people that I'm going to argue we have to be careful with, but we can never get rid of. Never, never in any way forget the fact that Christ is Emmanuel, the ransom captive of Israel. Why am I saying that? It's not because I'm an anti-Semite. I mean, no. Why am I saying that? Because that's what happened. That's the event. That's the historical grounding that our faith has. That Christ really was born there in the first century, really was part of the descendants of Abraham and David, really did, in a sense, come as the Messiah of Israel. Our faith is grounded in a historical act, an event that had a beginning and an end by watch to it. That Jesus really was born in Israel, really was crucified and raised from the faith. We can never diminish that because when we start to do that, 
Here's my point. When we start to forget that he was the ransom captive of Israel, we then make our faith a little more amorphous, malleable, adjustable to anything that we want it to be. I'll give you an illustration. I, um, I, uh, I was in a group and a person got up to pray and everybody was in a reverent mode uh, for the prayer, and or mood, I mean, and he starts off by saying, oh, uh, great mystery of all things. Not a bad phrase. Uh, and from that point on, the God that he was describing, I knew nothing about. What he was describing then, that he wanted God to do and what God was going to do, was contrary, I think, to so much of what the Christian faith was about. And so his notion of God, the, the mysterious other one, is so, if you think, it, it's so malleable, so it's like a wax nose, you can bend it around anywhere. But can you go back and change history? Can you go back and rewrite this story? No, it's not. It's a fact. We pray to a God that has acted in very specific ways, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Our faith is grounded in history by those particular facts. Now, of course, I'm not arguing that we should be uh, disrespectful for other people. I'm not arguing that, indeed, there is not a mystery about God. There is obviously a mystery about God, that God is great and God is more than what we could ever conceive. And we should never think that we don't have the last word or the infallible word about God. But our faith, though, is founded on this fact that God was indeed incarnate at a specific time, specific place, and a purpose. And so Christmas is a way of recognizing that, grounding our faith in historical events. You know, I know I've been sort of getting at this in different ways. We have to adjust our thinking to that fact, not try to get the fact to adjust to what we can think about. Okay, and then the last one, again, tying it to specifics, to history itself. The tribes of Israel, Jesus was as much a Jew as anybody was. Uh, they're connected here to the purpose of the law at Sinai's heights. That is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that was given to Moses. That we find the real purpose of all this. And then, you know, one thing I, I love about this hymn, and he, he, he's a poet as well as a great hymn writer, is that after moving from these very specific things, tribes, on other, he then goes into the cloud, the majesty, and the all of God. He, I think I, I might have said this. Uh, like, if you were to read yesterday's paper, if you give yourself enough time, you could probably get it all down, right? It, it is a manageable document. Some other books are a little more difficult, but if you give yourself enough time, We've got some lawyers in here. You could probably master the whatever it is of Alabama. Give yourself enough time. Whatever volumes you have to read, you could pretty well master it. Most of what we think about are things that if we have the right technology, means, and time, we can pretty well intellectually grasp it all. But here's the thing about our faith. Our faith is based upon something. The more you know it, the more you're devoted to it, the more you reflect on it, the more you study the Scriptures, the great teachings of the church, the more we sing these wonderful hymns, the more we know we are in front of something of a cloud, a majesty, and an awe. God is the one only reality that the more you know of it, the more you don't know of it. The closer we get to God, the greater the awesomeness, the majesty of God opens up in front of us. Uh... O come, O come, Emmanuel, wonderful hymn. I love this hymn. 
Uh, it's, uh, we don't know who actually wrote it. Uh, it uh, was translated into English by a 17th century hymn writer named John Mason Neal, who died in the year 1866. But he translated it uh, from a Latin hymn that was part of a German Latin text that uh, he, he translated in 1710. So he got this German Latin text, and most people think that that Latin text, and like I said, I'm getting lost here in some of the history of this, though, is grounded all the way back into the 8th century. And so the Latin text probably has roots back to the 8th century. Neil translates this in 1710, and it comes as the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's taken various forms. It has a number of verses that eventually were added to it. And what we have in the hymnal, the last couple of stanzas were put in there in 1916 by Henry Sloan Coffin. All right, I want to look at a couple of these. This is similar to what I picked up with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that is this great text that talks about Emmanuel, God with us. Once again, remember our faith is a paradox, God with us. Not that we go up to God, creator, creature, born, joined together, same reality. Two sides of one reality, human, divine, creature, creator. Emmanuel now is with us. But look how this is connected so much, once again, to the historicity of the event. That again, the more we know about Christmas, the more we should know about the history of that event. Just parenthetically, you know, so much of our celebration of Christmas, not only inside the church, but primarily outside the church, is ahistorical. It, it's not really a historical event. It's kind of like a relief from history. You just all of a sudden move out of the struggles and whips and scorns of times, as, as Shakespeare would say. And we do this celebration all this time. It's okay to, to believe in Santa Claus and reindeer and elf and all these interesting people that show up at Christmas. Yeah, we can believe in them. Hey, you know, I don't have to be committed to the historicity of any of that stuff. Santa Claus, of course not. Are you less... Uh, do you have any less Christian spirit in our society if you don't believe in the historicity of Santa Claus? No, because we want to treat it kind of as of a fancy. And you know, at, once again, because at the very heart of our Christian faith is this paradox, divine and human, the, 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 uh, the creator, the creature, the, the infinite, the finite. There's a tendency for, one, for you know, we want to get up here. Let's just now talk about the eternal things, the infinite things. And consequently, we, we sort of stretch our connections to the real historical events that went on. Just parenthetically. Now, I, this is just a thought experiment. Just a thought experiment. But if it were shown to me incontrovertibly, that is, it would, it would be as shown to me as clearly as, I don't know, you know, who, who won the Iron Bow? Who, who did win the Iron Bowl? <laughs> but, uh, whoever, we know Alabama won the Iron Bowl. That, that's beyond a shadow of a doubt. Anybody, any Auburn fans still deluded over that fact? No. Okay, we're incontrovertible. Clear and distinct fact. If it were shown to me that Jesus was never raised from the dead, never was a Mary and a Joseph there in Bethlehem, never was a Sinai experience, never was an exodus in any kind of way in which we want to try to factor that, if all that were shown to me incontrovertibly, I'd quit being a Christian. I'd be something else. Our tendency is to forget those things. Our Christmas celebration oftentimes is so fancifully laden. 
you know, all the decorations. So we, our minds kind of want to become transcendentalized out of history. Well, in fact, if anything, we ought to become more exact, more specific, more concrete, because that's what we are singing about. Well, for years, I just thought Christmas was bullshit. <laughs> In the last few years, Christmas has kind of weird. And, and, yeah, I mean, I love Christmas now, because you see the juxtaposition, the paradox, and all that. Right. The over-commercialization, I think, is the result of this. If we really took seriously what had happened, probably the last thing we would be doing would be, you know, getting in debt. <laughs> the last thing we'd be doing was kind of, you know, not all of it. I mean, your gift to your children and your grandchildren obviously worth it. But a lot of this other stuff is, is frivolous beside the point. Okay, all right, so be it. All right. This great hymn, though, Rod of Jesse, not just anybody's descendancy, this Jesus had a family tree. Like, you've got one, I've got one. Jesus had one. Uh, free from thine own Satan's tyranny, that Christ came to combat Satan. And we do know uh, that the first act of Jesus' ministry, when he was member there at baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Once again, hovered over him, just like at birth, just like at creation, just like the prophets, just like Sinai, just like with Abraham. The Holy Spirit is hovering over it. The Holy Spirit drives him out in the wilderness, and what's the first thing he does? He has this, this, you know, rumble with Satan through the three temptations. So we also have to understand that as part of our Christmas story, to come and fight the enemy of which we always lose. The depths of hell the people saved and gave him victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. I can't help but say that whenever I go to that line. Rejoice. It, it, it is a, I don't know, um, that's part of what music does. St. Augustine said that one way to account for uh, the power of music is that within each of us is a pruning fork that's still. Your soul is like a pruning fork. It has the capacity, but it cannot tune itself, right? No pruning fork tunes itself. You've seen this. You can get a pruning fork and you'll get another one and bring it up and then all of a sudden... They're in harmony with one another. These great hymns harmonize our soul. It sort of gets our pruning fork moving in a certain way. The music does that. And so I'm shortchanging the power of these great hymns because the music is part of this. You get caught up into it. There is a power. In fact, there's this famous philosopher named Wittgenstein. He was ethnically Jewish and had a lot of interest and affinities for Christianity near the end of his life. He was buried in Cambridge, England. He said all of his life, and he was a brilliant man, probably one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, Wittgenstein. He said all his life he has been trying to figure out why music is so compelling on him. It's that tuning fork thing. We, we have a potential we cannot actualize. Something comes in music that actualizes our soul. And here, you know, like those angels who sing at Christmas, we should also sing. It's a way of activizing our pruning forks. Okay. O come thou day spring, uh, kind of an interesting phrase that is used to describe Christ, like the, the day star coming up. Christ is the birth of a new day for us. Our spirits by thine advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. I'm going to pick up the speed a little bit. Yes? This is the one, they, they sang this last Sunday at St. Mark's. Okay. And it's from the 1982 hymnal. Some of the words and the verses are completely different. Is that right? Yeah. 
Huh. If you go back for just a second to the to the one line before you can do that, um, where it talks where you're talking about the rod of Jesse. Right. In this one, O come thou branch of Jesse's tree. Freedom from Satan's tyranny. That trust thy mighty power to save and give him victory for the grave. Who um Who's at who's at the bottom of that hymn? Who translated? Uh, this is um, the words Latin, so the nineteenth century hymnal version from the hymnal nineteen forty. Hmm. All right, let me look. I think that this this translation that I have, it, this is the Latin hymn translated by Jane Mason Neal. Is Neal at the bottom of that? Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. Okay, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Than a rod of Jesse? I don't know. And some of that may be just to Latin, a word that can be maybe translated different ways. But I do think a lot of the theology that perhaps has been removed out of some of our more contemporary hymns uh, is, is very unfortunate to remove that. Because it does say, I mean, like the blood of the Lord and the blood of the Lamb, it says there had to be a cost to this. This wasn't an easy thing for God. God just didn't say, okay, no big deal. No, it, it, well, we created a problem that the only way it could be solved is with an eternal solution. Okay, be that as it may. Come thou uh, wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh. I like that. Come thou wisdom from on high. Christ has come from high and order all things far and nigh. Our order, of, our lives are rightly ordered by Christ. Our loves are rightly ordered by Christ. That is what you should love and the way you love it, your family, your work, your church, your health, your future, has to be rightly ordered. Sometimes they begin, they get disproportionate. They get too important. There still should be loves like my family. I mean, I would do anything for my family. But in a way, it has to be rightly ordered. Our families have to be justified by, that is, they are there, they find their place in being ordered all things for a night. Even our dearest and most cherished and affections, affectionate loves that we have, like our family, have to be justified by being rightly ordered by Christ. Christ then, in a sense, Christ, Christ does away with, as Kierkegaard said, all gossip about God. Christ tells us how to rightly order your life. There's no real wonder. Which is more important? Work or family? Hmm. Which is more important? You know, uh, the iron bow or your church? <laughs> now, I know that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, but which is more important? My family or Christ? Which is more important? Well, what Christmas is about is that that has been revealed to us, the proper order of our loves. It starts with God, goes to our love of our neighbor. In fact, 
this is another story, but a way to justify the people whom you marry is that this is my neighbor with whom I'm making a lifetime vow as husband or wife. You still have to love your neighbor, even if it's your wife <laughs> or your husband. And them, sometimes they're the worst neighbors we have. Uh, oh, I shouldn't have judged. Okay. And cause us her ways to go. I am not. Oh, come desire of nations. Our faith is not tribal. It's not local, provincial. It's, it's a universal faith. We really proclaim this. I know at this day and time that's presumptuous. It, it seems rather condescending and you know, arrogant on our part. But the church... If we really believe Christmas is committed to the idea, as, as it says, the desire of all nations, we, we proclaim that faith. We should do it convincingly, respectfully, humbly, but nonetheless, we should proclaim that. Our hearts of all humanity, sad division cease, be thyself our king of peace. Christ is our king of peace. I am going to quickly move into this. I just have about four or five more minutes, and so I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do this. I've done some work here on these great, great Advent prayers from uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, most of you are Episcopals. Some of you are, quote, cradle Episcopals. Uh, and so the name Thomas Cranmer is, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Thomas Cranmer <laughs> is down there. And rightly so. Not that he's associated with the Trinity, but what a tremendous blessing he has been for the English-speaking church. His skill, he is Archbishop of Canterbury during a very tumultuous time, by the way. He's eventually martyred for his faith by Queen Mary, the Catholic, and he's killed with other great British reformers, Latimer and Ridley, at the same time. Uh, an incredibly literate man. Uh, they, uh, he, he, he dealt with the Latin. He had inherited, as Archbishop, the Latin liturgy, because it was still prevalent. This is, you know, the end of the 1500s, you know, the... Luther's Reformation, 1517, the English Reformation, I just lost my date, 1540s or something, Henry VIII, and it started all this Reformation. And so they inherited the Latin liturgies. Uh, the primary Latin liturgy was associated with their great cathedral at Salisbury called Sarum, S-A-R-U-M. And uh, it already had this wonderful prayer book associated with it. And Cranmer wrote prayers on his own and translated most of those using this great you know, English that he has. And I, I, this is just a hunch on my part. I think it's a defensible one. I, it'd take me some work, I think, textually to prove this, that one of the reasons why he and also the translators of the King James Bible were so good at this is because they did know Latin. Latin is in more meter than English is. And if you read these collects, uh, there's a real meter to them. There's a tremendous flow that runs through these colleagues. Most of them are one sentence, by the way. And we, we don't write that well. But I think a lot of that is the influence because of his knowledge of Latin. But this is the one uh, in the 1662. But it's actually, I, th I found this out earlier. Um, it's actually in the 1549, which was the first book of common prayer for the Church of England. Then it was added to, polished up in 1559, and then the, this famous version. Probably this has been the most influential book of common prayer in, in the Church of England. This is the 1662. All right, we have this prayer here from Thomas Cramer. It's in the 1662, originally from 1549, and then the 1549 version. But it's also in the 1979 version, which is this. 
Uh, most people think, you've seen this little book written by your former dean here, Paul Zoll, the collects of Thomas Cranmer. He has little histories under each one of these collects that, uh, that either Cranmer translated or wrote. And it does say that this was probably a, a Cranmer uh, prayer. And so I'm going to read this. All right. And I've got a feeling I'm not going to be able to do all the Advent prayers here. But again, you know, part of the, you know, the word colic is from the verb to collect. It's a public prayer. Of course, you can pray this privately, and I, I recommend it. You do. I do these. I love praying these devotionally. But it, you know, the idea of a colic is that we collect everybody into a public prayer. So you and I are collected in this prayer. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead we rise to life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost now and forever. Tremendous flow. Uh, most of these colics have various divisions to them. It changes a little bit, but most of them have three visions. The first one is a description of God. Almighty God, cast away works. So you start your prayer by acknowledging the one to whom you pray, the, the specific characteristics, not just, oh, you great mystery above, but we're praying to a specific deity. The second is a petition that is often accompanied by a challenge. Uh, put upon us the armor of light that at last we shall come again in glory. So the petition is accompanied by challenge. And then the last part of it is a, is a recognition of, of, the, of the way by which God is God in answering these prayers. So there's an introduction, which is a description of God, a petition with a challenge. And then at the conclusion, there is a praise for what God does and what God is. All of these colleagues have that kind of content to them. And one thing I like about it, in fact... I collect prayers. I have all kinds of prayers from ancient, old, and modern. And I try to learn from these prayers, both in style and in content. And one thing that I love reading about uh, from Cranmer's prayers here in the Book of Common Prayer is look how, look how replete that is with information. But it's one thought. It's almost, if I could take a deep enough breath, one breath. Almighty God, if I could take a big, deep breath. It's one breath, it's one thought, it's one concept that's just packed with information. Almost like the incarnation. One baby. Little, I don't know what Jesus weighed when he was born, but packed with the eternal logos. But in some ways, these colics is a, is a way to represent, I think, the, the great depth of what our faith is about. Um, you need to go. Some of you need to be out at about 10 o'clock. And so um, I didn't get as far as I want. When we come back next Sunday, not Tuesday, if any of you were here Tuesday, forgive me for saying Tuesday, but next Sunday, I'll finish this on the Advent. And then I hope to, I mean, on the, on the Book of Common Prayer, and hope to add a couple more prayers to it. We'll look at that full prayer from Gerard Manley Hopkins, and it's a powerful prayer. We're going to look at a prayer from John Dunn and then maybe another hymn or two. All right, go in peace, be warm and filled, and I'll see you next Sunday.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.